Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 13th, 2012, and my guest is Jim Manzi. He is the author of Uncontrolled. Jim, welcome to Econ Talk. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Your book is a really extraordinary overview of the history of science, the current state of economics, social science generally, what we know and what we don't know, and what we might do about all that. And I want to start with a thumbnail sketch of the history of science, which you devote a couple chapters to. How did our knowledge begin to grow so dramatically? And why don't you start with Francis Bacon, as you do in the book? Sure. I think he is a obviously a seminal figure in the development of modern science, who is often referred to today, but uh, not read as much as he ought to be. And one of the things I discovered is I really went back to some of his books that I hadn't seen since high school is how incredibly prophetic he was and how much he laid the philosophical foundations for modern empirical science. And I think the most foundational um, transformation that occurred because of his thinking was what he called the, the transition from where from to whereby. And what he meant by that was abandoning the Aristotelian attempt to understand things like final or ultimate causes and instead simply think of the world as uh, particles plus rules for their interaction. It was very clear that the purpose of this and the purpose of science was not to attain philosophical truth, but ultimately to, in his words, or in translation in his words, to increase the limits of the power and greatness of man. In other words, for Francis Bacon, the ultimate purpose of science is not truth. It's improved engineering. It's is it useful? Exactly. And he was clear, of course, that there is, he called, uh, it's crazy to get past this crazy language, even in translation, it's difficult, but once you do, you realize how modern he is. And he talks about the concept of experiments of fruit versus experiments of light. And by experiments of fruit, he means fundamentally experiments oriented around solving immediate practical problems and experiments of light being uh, research and analysis, he didn't really distinguish between experiments and observations as rigorously as we know how to do today, uh, but research and analysis uh, to determine general principles. And he was clear that though the ultimate goal was improved engineering, that in fact it made a lot of sense to focus on experiments of light for a long period of time, not only on experiments of fruit, uh, of fruit um, and so actually a fluid relationship in the idea of applied, what we call today applied in, in basic research, and um, emphasize the need to do basic research and for scientists themselves to be motivated by a belief that they were seeking truth, whereas he saw the ultimate goal of the overall scientific endeavor ultimately as being practical progress. And as you mentioned, uh, we've been really good at that, at the practical side. Uh, I use a few obvious examples, MRI, airplanes, your cell phone, right? We, we've done an extraordinary job of mastering 
the physical world to produce useful tools. Uh, but we'd like more than that. And there, our understanding is more limited. You mean o- applied to social and economic policy? And the part that, that, that Bacon was going to put to the side about the truth. Um, I, I think a lot of people have a romance about science uh, and social science uh, that it seeks truth and it, and it finds truth and it experiments um, illuminate truth. But there are much better experiments in scientific knowledge generally – one of the themes I got from your book is they're much better at, at highlighting what works most of the time. They're not so good at discovering what works all the time, um, which is what truth would require. That's right. And um, there are several points embedded in your question. Um, and I spent a lot of time on this in the book because I think this is foundation you have to lay to really think rigorously about social sciences. And, um, what he emphasizes and what I think is true if you look at the actual modern uh, practice of science is science like markets and other, and I argue, analogous institutions, and I'm not the first to make this observation, uh, creates progress as an emergent phenomenon that um, individual scientists uh, typically feel like in some way they are participating in a process which is finding truth. One of the things they say in the book is, the idea that scientific findings are literally only predictive tools and unrelated to the actual, um, quote-unquote, really true structure of the universe is called instrumentalism. And there are zero, I mean, literally zero scientific, successful scientists of my acquaintance who are themselves instrumentalists. Um, however, the process of science is um, brutal about treating theories as predictive tools that are discarded when better predictive tools come along and evaluating the truth in the scientific sense of that term of a statement as the ability to make reliable, non-obvious predictions. And um, therefore, I think this idea, as you say, of romanticizing science is uh, a category error. Um, the goal of science is, is not actually in the strictest sense finding truth in the classic philosophical definition of correspondence between statements and reality. The purpose of science is to build reliable, non-obvious predictive rules that allow us to master our physical environment better than we could in the absence of those rules. And I think clarity on that point is crucial when we start to consider social and uh, social sciences, economics, and so on, because while distinctions that can be hyper-technical when dealing with pure physical science start to become very significant when we deal with social reality. And many of the inherent, implicit, and you know, therefore undated rules of thumb or heuristics used by the scientific method that are a tolerable approximation in something like um, you know, classical physics start to come unglued when we um, apply those methods to more complicated phenomena like uh, social structures. And of course... The gold standard of um, of scientific progress, which is the replicable experiment, is much tougher in the social sciences, both in terms of the ability to replicate as well as its generality. So you, you, you start off spending a reasonable amount of time doing something which seems like just philosophical um, 
theorizing that's that's not really important, which is Hume's problem with uh, induction, which seems like a nitpick in certain applications, but is uh, kind of central when you think about the social sciences. That's right. I mean, I, I think that at the level of philosophy of science, you know, Hume's problem of induction, which is essentially that if I conclude that a relationship is causal um, by observing that X is always preceded by Y, um, I cannot know for a fact that that relationship will hold in the future. So to take a seemingly nitpicking example or kind of crazy example, every you know, just because every time I've let go of a coin, it's fallen, doesn't mean that I know that if I let go of the quarter I'm now holding in my hand, it will fall. It might just sit still in the air. Um, and human, in fact, made made fun of himself. In fact, he, he jumped ahead of the reader who he knew he was going to make fun of himself and sort, sort of made fun of this and said, you know, this might seem crazy, but actually I think it's somewhat important. And of course, it, it's crucially important at a philosophical level, even for physical science. But it becomes extremely important and practical when we deal with social sciences because the um, complexity of the phenomena under study makes it um, much less uh, practically certain that when we observe a relationship and induce that it is a cause and effect relationship, that we can reliably generalize that to future instances and make and take action based upon. So let's talk about an example you mentioned in the um, in the book, which I think about all the time and write about way too much, and I think I've spoken about it uh, a number of times on this program, which, which is the stimulus package of 2009, mm-hmm. which uh, was about $820 billion, is what it turned out to be uh, after the fact. And um, there are a large number of economists who, quote, know that it created a certainly large number, millions of jobs. Um and I guess the relevant question would be, how do you know? And your answer... My argument is... We, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, my answer is you don't know. Um, the, the, only, the only people I'm extremely skeptical of are people who insist they know the answer to that question. Um, you know, the, one of the reasons I started writing this book is I, I had started a software company at the very end of the 1990s. And anyone who's ever done a startup knows you, you go down into a very deep tunnel when you do that, <laughs> and you are focused really only on your business. And um, I uh, sold a portion of the company and kind of reemerged into the light um, just before the massive financial crisis uh, occurred in 2008. And I remember for the first time, in effect, looking to the TV in a long time and seeing, you know, baritone-voiced, very serious-looking economists saying, you know, we know what caused this crisis, and by the way, here's the proposal that will uh, have a positive effect. And of course, you know, you, you, ten minutes later, you could see another very serious-sounding baritone-voiced economist saying exactly the opposite. Right? And watching this, I said, you know, I've just spent ten years trying to figure out how many Snickers bars ought to go on a shelf at the convenience store, and what the effect of the change of adding more or fewer Snickers bars would be. And that's really difficult. And it's difficult because human beings are complicated. And it's extremely difficult to make predictions that are not obvious, that are reliable and useful about the effect of our interventions. And I start from a position of extreme skepticism that you can really know something like this. And really, I spent several years diving into it. And as I think you've mentioned in at least one uh, Wall Street Journal column that I've read, 
you know, even at the time, and I started writing by around the time, so in early 2009, the debate is happening. You know, you can see, you know, Paul Krugman and Joseph Stiglitz and people with Nobel Prize in economics arguing that we need a stimulus, and in fact, it ought to be much bigger than $20,000. And at the exact same time, you can see James Buchanan, Prescott, and Smith, and Gary Becker, and other people with Nobel Prize in economics saying, this is a really bad idea. <laughs> this is not a good use of money at all. And what I wrote in, in early 2009 is, you know, I have an opinion on it. I don't pretend it's science about what we have to do. Um, but I don't believe any of the folks who are, who are making these confident assertions really know what the effect will be. And the only prediction I'll make is this. And I will predict that in you know, early 2011, the professor of famous economist X said, you know, uh, unemployment will be about, you know, X percent, then 10 percent in two years without this bill, and 8 percent with the bill. When it gets to be 2011, if unemployment is 10%, here's what that professor's going to say. You know, conditions were worse than we thought they were. Yep. So without the bill, unemployment would have been 12%, not 10%. It's now 10%. See, I was right all along. It lowered it by about two points. Yep. And, you know, it's exactly what happened, of course. You know, that's exactly what the administration of Congress came on and said. And there's nothing to do with Democrats versus Republicans. No. Right, right? You know, George W., if John McCain had been president, it would have been Republican advisors. So... so- you know, when you- and what I said is you can't, you cannot know the counterfactual reliably, which turns out to be important. Now, the other side of that, the, the counterpoint, when, when you're, I'm on your side, but the, the counterpoint would be when you see two groups of economists claiming uh, either that the stimulus needs to be twice as big or it needs to be zero, one possibility is that one of the groups is right and the other is just wrong. Um, it is strange to me that people with uh, argue with such uh, vehemence about the certainty of their position given that there are intelligent people on the other side, credible people, people with similar credentials. And the reason I say that is because if it were the case that, that one side was obviously right and it was a scientific question as opposed to an ideological and philosophical question, well, then they could just show them the evidence. But, of course, there is no evidence <laughs> – that's decisive. Yeah, that's right. That's decisive. There's only cherry picking. Yeah. So it's easy for each side to cherry pick. And I think the uh, the fundamental question is on, on this topic is uh, do we make progress? Are we getting closer? Right. And my view is I don't see any sign we're making progress. Uh, and right. the the to me it takes an immense amount of hubris to be uh, confident about about your position in this in this story, and uh, you know, I, I think, yeah. one more point because I want you to introduce this other concept, which I thought was so useful. Um, you, you introduced the phrase "high causal density," and there's few things that have more high causal density, meaning lots of simultaneous uh, changes that affect behavior and actions and output outcomes than an economy wide uh, than the economy as a whole. And to then pretend that you can isolate the effect of one of those changes and ignore all the others. Um, and you do this many times in the book, but I, I did it yesterday on my blog, Inspired by You, which is if you list the things that happened since 2008, uh, since 2009 when the stimulus was passed, and you would list just to start. It's easy to make a, sh- a fairly long list to start with. You have mm-hmm. – um, uh, an enormous change in monetary policy. You have enormous changes in housing prices. 
you have huge policy interventions in healthcare and in financial sector regulation. You have animal spirits, consumer confidence, bouncing around, doing all kinds of unexpected and unknown things. You have international changes, and you don't pretend that you can quantify. You also have a recovery that starts uh, at, at one point, in the output market at least. And so you're trying to measure the impact of one of those changes, the stimulus spending, on, say, employment. And you can't quantify five of the things I just mentioned. A couple of them you can. Right. But you're going to pretend that you've therefore isolated the impact of the one that you really want to care about? I mean, what kind of – Right. It, 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 to me, it's it's so intellectually dishonest. I, I don't understand. <laughs> and I'm an economist. Right. right. <laughs> exactly right, right. So, you know, I guess there are obviously, again, multiple great – uh, parts to this question. So when you say, you know, you have these two groups arguing and there's the potential that, you know, one's right and one's wrong and so on, you know, one is right and one is wrong about what the effect of the stimulus was, um, direction at least. I just don't know which one. Yeah. It's like two groups of people. It's like asking me the question, how many, is the number of stars in our galaxy odd or even? Well, there's a real answer to that question. And I've had a bunch of people yelling odd and a bunch of people yelling even. One of those two groups is right. But unless one of them has access to knowledge that I don't think we have as a species right now, you know, we don't know. We don't know which one is right. And that doesn't mean it is a theoretically, technically answerable question, how many how many stars are there in the galaxy, but we don't have the knowledge right now, and we don't have the capacity to get the knowledge right now. And that's the way I, I feel about that debate. And if you um, did, I and if you did, if, for example, we had a debate about uh, on a baseball team in the, in the the on the defense, how many players are in the field, is it odd or even? We know the answer is... I say it's nine, right. and nine is odd. You say, no, 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 it's an even number, and we count them. And, I, and you would have to go, yeah, right. oh, I, I guess I was wrong. There's nothing analogous yeah, right. to that, uh, remotely analogous to that, in, in the case of economic policy intervention. I think that's uh, certainly in the case of macroeconomics right. So, I mean, I think this idea of um, causal density is an important one. And so in the book, I try and break apart this idea of generally, you know, uh, phenomenological complexity into components, one of which I call um, causal density. And if you think about using an experiment, which is the analog to your, let's just count the number of people on the, on the field um, example or metaphor, um, think about the classic and probably it's not exactly how it happened, um, story of um, Galileo dropping unequally weighted cannonballs off a leaning tower of Pisa to determine whether or not Aristotle um, was correct in his theory that heavier objects should fall to the earth faster than lighter objects. And of course, famously, he falsified the theory because he dropped these, you know, uh, two unequal weighted balls and they hit the ground at the same time. And, you know, imagine when he did that, um, if you think about even classical mechanics, various bodies are interacting with these balls as they drop, right? There are the, there are the cannonballs themselves and there's the earth. And we can model the rate of descent to an excellent engineering approximation as being only the gravitational interaction between each of the balls and the Earth. But, of course, there are gravitational interactions between those balls and the sun and the moon and each of the planets and, you know, every wind resistance. dust particle in the crab nebula, right? W- wind resistance and, that isn't the same for each ball yeah, exactly, because the exactly. atmosphere is that's varied. Right. And and so, that's right. A- imagine if instead of gravity attenuating with distance by one or R squared, 
imagine gravity doesn't attenuate with distance. And so as these balls moved in relation to each of those, each of those uh, particles all over the universe, they started swinging around in crazy directions and not moving basically very steadily and rapidly towards the Earth. What you'd see is instead of balls dropping, you'd see two balls moving around all over the place. And it would be extremely difficult you know, to measure the effects of any of these interactions such that you could falsify or confirm theory. And that's really, I think, what goes on uh, in, in the economy. And so whenever I hear not just economists but social scientists you know, describe some very plausible idea um, about a causal relationship, uh, you know, when we <clears throat> uh, execute some program or take some action, look, people care a lot about financial incentives so when we change the following price, this behavior will change. Almost always, the causal vector they're describing is sensible, and almost certainly there's at least one human being in which exactly the little story they told is in fact a cause which create, you know, creates an action for them. The problem is there are millions and millions of other causes, many of which are relevant, acting on people uh, who are being subjected to the following program. So while it sounds, well, it sounds in a narrative sense so compelling, and then I do some regression analysis and try and show that I've really held everything else constant and measured the isolated effect of this cause. Sounds so compelling to us. In fact, it, it is always more complicated than our methods, uh, non-experimental methods, can handle. And the argument in the book is we kid ourselves when we think we have isolated causal effects. So let me play uh, someone on the other side. Um of which I would say it's most economists who gladly use regression right. analysis without shame. Um, uh, they would say, look, of course we can't control everything. Just like in the case of the following, the falling, the falling cannonballs, I'm not going to take account of the distance of the earth from the sun that day and the fact that one of the balls is closer to the sun than the other. Um, and so that's, you're right. Uh, but those are small. Those effects are, or small. And what I've done in my analysis, my regression analysis, is I've isolated the significant important factors. And, you know, you're just, again, you're nitpicking. You're, you're just being, oh, yeah, technically you're right. Wind resistance matters. But when it comes to dropping the cannonballs, they land at the same time. I don't need to take into account wind resistance or the distance from the sun. And similarly, when I'm doing uh, regression analysis and isolating the impact which regression analysis being a multivariate technique for isolating multiple causal uh, vectors where I can then have uh, isolate the individual impact of one holding the others constant. When I'm doing that, I'm, it's basically – it's close enough. It's close enough for, for practical purposes. What's your response to that? Well, first of all, I mean I've built thousands of regression models in my life, and they are not useless. They're useful for certain purposes. Um, what I argue is that they are not capable of uh, determining uh, reliable, useful, and non-obvious uh, effects of interventions. And I'll give you several pieces of evidence which are extended at much greater length in the book for why. First of all, when you take celebrated, as I try and do in the book, regression analyses, you can show over and over again that the same problems recur and are significant. And, you know, in semi-technical terms, omitted variable bias is not a kind of nitpick. Omitted variable bias when it comes to, you know, human systems 
is massive, and you can show over and over again this is true. Explain what omitted variable bias is. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is if I have a uh, regression equation which tries to predict some outcome y as a function of a set of variables, I want to predict um, you know, what unemployment will be as a function of you know, the size of the employment you know, hypothetically, the size of the population, uh, economic growth rate in a prior period, the education level of population, and so on. And I say, I'm trying to use this to measure the effect of changing education levels on um, unemployment. And all the variables other than education, changes in education level are meant to be controls or to hold constant these other effects we described. That if I neglected to include a variable in my model for let's say um, the amount of immigration into into the society, that turns out to be causally important. That what happens is by failing to include that, I modify or create instability in all the parameter estimates, including the estimate of the variable I care about. And therefore, if I've left out any significant variables from my equation, um, the estimate of the impact of the variable I care about is called into question. And my argument is that all regression models, including I take one I built and rip it apart in detail and show how this is true, all models like this are subject to um, omitted variable bias because we can't get data on all the all the um, potential causes that um, the number of um, the complexity of the phenomenon overweighs outweighs our ability to build. Uh, terms to build interaction terms and so on, and they are always subject. That's a significant embedded variable bias, such that we cannot rely on their results. And the response, I think, of the typical economist, applied economist, is, well, "Yeah, but I'm doing the best I can." You know, yeah, that's well, the best you know, we can do. The best you can isn't. Sometimes the best you can isn't good enough. In other words, the the, the relevant standard. If I'm being practical about, I want advice as a person making decisions about programs, uh, whether to do the program or not, or how to do it or so on, is it's not, is this the best analysis compared to other analyses? Is, is this the best analysis? Is this, the, is, this, is this analysis add value versus other analyses or expert judgment? And my argument is that in, or part of my argument is that in many instances, it, the analysis doesn't clear the hurdle of practicality. It well, doesn't actually... Create, inf- create useful information I don't already have in the absence of the analysis. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And the, the reason I agree with you is that I have come to believe – this is really embarrassing, again, as a professional economist. But I've come to believe that uh, there may be no examples. There may be zero cases of where uh, a sophisticated multivariate econometric analysis, which is what we're talking about, multivariate regression in a high causal density case – where important policy issues are at stake, has led to a consensus where somebody says, well, I guess I was wrong, people on the other side of the issue. Your analysis, you've got a significant coefficient there, I'm wrong. No, they always say, you left this out, you left that out. Uh, And they're right, of course. Uh, And then they can redo the analysis and show that, in fact, uh, and so what what that means is that the tools, instead of leading to Certainty and improved knowledge about the usefulness of, of policy interventions are merely window dressing for ideological biases that are pre-existing in the case of the of the researchers, which is a very harsh statement, and I'm not going to try to defend it 
uh, here, but I want I want you to use as your ex- the example used in the book, which I thought was fantastic, of the physicist and the historian, and later the economist advising the president, which to me highlights uh, the the, de- the gradations of science. I almost said degradations. The gradations yeah. of of science that uh, that are present in our and how much we know and what we don't know. Right. Well, I mean, I think that. Um, it's very difficult to prove a negative, right? So is, is there no example of that ever happening is, is a very tough statement uh, to defend. However, one of the things I point out in the book is uh, Greg Menke is a very eminent economist who's written, if not the, one of the most widely used economics textbooks um, in America, uh, has a chapter, you know, in his economics textbook where he says, okay, you know, is economics a science or not? And he lists in the edition I used in my book, it was 14, I think it's now expanded to uh, 20 or so propositions to which economists agree. And, you know, my reaction to that, when I go through that list is kind of, where's the beef, right? So I take these 14, you know, assertions. And first of all, seven of them are completely non-falsifiable value judgments. Um, I'm quoting from memory, so this won't be exactly right. You know, um, we should, uh, a country should not impose tariffs. So as soon as you see the word, you know, should or would, et cetera, you, you know, you're not really dealing, you're dealing with a normative statement, not a predictive rule. Right? Yeah. So how, how do you possibly test that? Even those which are theoretically falsifiable in practice aren't because the, um, you know, the statement will be so general, like, uh, uh, Stimulative spending in, in, in an economy of the following conditions will create some gain in employment. And I suspect, but don't know, that many of the people who oppose the stimulus program, for example, would agree that, look, I can't measure it, but I think it's, as a practical matter, very likely that U.S. GDP was at least $1 higher in one quarter because we spent, you know, $820 billion, use your number. Um, but the point is, I need to have a parameter estimate that allows me to say, is this a good use of investment of resources or not. And at that point, you don't have alignment. And by the way, all of these 14 statements are generally agreed to by between 75 yeah. and 90% it's not 100. of economists. It's not 100. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, basically, you know, I bet I could find a physicist somewhere on, who's a tenured professor of physics somewhere on Earth who would disagree that Newton's laws of motion provide, you know, an excellent engineering approximation for motion of bodies at non-relativistic speeds and above quantum size. But I could probably find like one. You can't right? find twenty percent. Ninety nine point nine nine percent agree. So I, I think there's good evidence that even if you you know you have to clear the hurdle of I've got agreement among economists, then you have to clear the hurdle of it's agreement and they're right. <laughs> uh, you don't even clear the hurdle of agreement. I think. And you know I I don't think that's because they're dumb or not working hard. I, I think that's because they're studying a very complicated phenomenon. And the example that you cite are the little kind of parable almost that. Yeah. I open that section of the book with is basically saying, you know, look, imagine you're the president of the United States and you are receiving, uh, you're considering a, an Iranian nuclear weapons program and what to do about it. And into the room walks your science advisor and she says, look, if the Iranians take the following amount of fissile material and combine it in a sphere of this size and this um, method, it will create an explosion big enough to blow up the city. And next into the room, comes a historian, and the historian says, well, you know, if we attempt to subvert the Iranian nuclear weapons program, my reading of the history of Iran is that the people will want this enough. They will continue to replace one way or another the government until this happens. So it really is not a good idea to try and stop this. 
And what I say is, you know, even if it happens to be President Carter, who was trained as a nuclear engineer, even if you know nuclear physics, for the president to sit there and begin debating the, the, the empirically validated laws of physics uh, with a science advisor is kind of foolish. On the other hand, not debating with the historian, not bringing in different historians with different points of view, talking to people who've lived in Iran, personal introspection about human motivations <clears throat> would be equally foolish. And so really, you ought to treat the prediction made by the physicist very differently than the prediction made by the historian. Both are valuable. I would never advise taking an action without listening to both those uh, people and lots of historians in the case of the historian and non-historian experts, non-historians non who know about the situation. And then imagine third, the president's economic advisor walks in the room and she says, well, you know, the CIA has a program to counterfeit currency in Iran. And the idea is it's this amount of counterfeiting will create this amount of inflation and in turn this amount of unemployment. The question I pose is, should you as the president treat the economist's prediction more like the historian's prediction or more like the physicist's prediction? And what I say is a lot more like the historian's prediction. Yeah, I, and it's, it's interesting because I, I've come to believe uh, one of the things uh, I really liked about your book was how much it parallels my thinking. So I have to be careful being subject to my own <laughs> confirmation bias. But in recent months, I used to say economics isn't like physics. It's more like biology. But I'm starting to really think it's more like history in the cases that we care about and the applications that we care about. Um, and I want to say, by the way, for all those listening, that, of course, I think understanding economics and understanding trade-offs and understanding emergent order, the, the parts of economics that I think are glorious and important are very useful in helping you organize your thinking and, and, and understand the world. Uh, what I think it's not good at is predicting the impact of government spending on, um, on employment, say – and it's ironic, though, that you pick for your example one of the few areas where I think we do know a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. So when I talk about empirical work that has changed people's minds in the profession, uh, Friedman and Schwartz, their uh, Monetary History of the United States, which I think came out in 1960, actually I think did have an impact on how economists of differing – ideologies and, and methodology, methodological views came to see the impact of the money supply on inflation. Now, I don't think we can quantify it. We can't quantify the impact on unemployment, but I'd be pretty confident that if the U.S. government uh, increased the money supply of Iran through counterfeit money that was accepted, that it would raise the price level uh, and maybe continuously if we continued to do it in Iran. Um, but that's about it for me. There aren't many other economy-wide experiments I'm comfortable with. And I say that, the, the fact, the little certainty that I do have, because I think uh, there have been a lot of natural experiments where not much else changed except the money supply. And we know a little bit about that. Uh, those are not multivariate regression analyses. They're not complicated econometric analyses. They're simply... You know, the Civil War, during the Civil War, the Union overran the South's printing press and inflation stopped in the South. <laughs> Those kind of right. observations make me pretty confident about there's some, there's a relationship there. I can't quantify it precisely, but I think I know the direction. But, right. Just, to <laughs> well, you know, I think that, um, uh, I think that, a, you know, a couple things are, are, are true. One is I really did. I very much avoided getting into um, any kind of a, a debate, uh, really about the semantics of you know is is 
is economics is science or is social science really science and so on. One of the things I try to emphasize is it's just a way, uh, science is just a way of trying to make progress and the real question is how much progress does this method uh, achieve in different areas. And I think that, it, you know, when it comes to the adjudication of the actual questions of political economy that confront the government of the United States or other highly developed economies, um, it is very difficult to find examples of, well, here's this prediction for the effect of this proposed interaction, which is non-obvious and which is reliable, that allows us to make a different decision that we know is better. I'm not saying it never happens, but it's actually uh, quite rare. Let's take and further. I go ahead. Go, go ahead. And further, I think that the the way forward, and it will only lead to marginal improvements. But the way forward is to use lots more experiments, um, natural where you have them, but controlled where you can possibly do them. And then to go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, this was one of the insights of Francis Bacon. When you take the view about science that its ultimate purpose is to help us master our environment. Um, there's a reason what he, the method he put forward, which he named in Latin, but was very quickly named the experimental method and later the scientific method, focused on experiments because they're a feedback loop which allows us to end certain kinds of debates and make progress. So let's talk about um, one, of the, one experiment that you mentioned in the book, which um, these kind of experiments in social science drive me crazy uh, and recent guests – uh, I've talked about these kind of issues in the social sciences, but there's a famous uh, experiment where uh, shoppers were confronted with a small amount of choice, in this case of jam, and then a large amount of choice, and an unintuitive thing happened. The large number of choices discouraged purchase, and this, of course, encouraged some people to conclude that Choice is dangerous or not as good as we thought or people aren't rational. Talk about that experiment and why it's just slightly maybe exaggerated in terms of the what we learned from it. Yeah, I, I, of course. Um, so in my company that I started, um, basically what we do is we provide software used to design and interpret experiments um, disproportionately retail. So I have seen the results of and designed um, you know, thousands and thousands of retail experiments. And so I'm very familiar with the kind of experiment that, is, that was described in this paper about the JAM experiment. And what happened is, in that experiment, a group of researchers set up a table in a particular um, grocery store in Northern California on two successive Saturdays. And for uh, five hours um, total across these two Saturdays, they had a table set up which said, try your jams, and if you like them, you get a dollar off if you go and buy the jams over there on the counter where you purchase jams. And for five of the hours, they had uh, uh, a small selection of jams, six or eight. And for five of the hours, they had 24, I think, types of jam on the table. And what they observed is that the redemption rate on the coupon, uh, the percentage of people who showed up and looked at the table who ultimately bought a jar of jam, was greater um, during the hours where they had a smaller selection of jams than a larger selection of jams. So that's the experiment. Now, this has been telescoped up into, you know, statements about capitalism you know, works or how humans, yeah. re- exactly, you know, how humans respond to choice and choice overload. And, uh, Barry Schwartz wrote a, wrote a best-selling book about this. And, you know, I have a, there are a few observations I make about this experiment. First of all, 
um, the difference in the conversion rates is incredible. It's like um, one is 10 times the other. So in other words, what do you mean by conversion rates? So the, the percentage of people who bought the jam divided by the, the number of people who bought the jam divided by the number of people who visited the table mm-hmm. was in one case about 30% in the s- small selection case. And it was about 3% in the large selection case. So first of all, if you think about, if you were to believe this experiment would apply at the level of generality to be relevant for, you know, social reality, social programs, what that's saying is basically by eliminating 75% of my, of my products, of my SKUs in a store, I could, you know, increase sales by 10x. That's a pretty gigantic belief about a kind of market abnormality. That's a lot like of $20 somehow, bills laying on the, a lot of $20 bills laying yeah. on the ground. It's suitcases of cash, yeah. right? I mean, like, I've worked with a lot of the biggest retailers in the world, and believe me, you know, they are constantly trying to squeeze out little margins. The idea that I could take a supermarket, cut out 75% of the products, and my sales would go up by a factor of 10 is, is implausible. So I've also, across these many thousands of experiments, there's a reason why if you were to run experimenting, many, probably at least a thousand, maybe thousands of those thousands have been experiments about promotional actions like this. You, you normally don't run a test like this in one store over two days. You run it over maybe several weeks across 20 or 30 stores. And the reason is because you have all kinds of violations of the assumption of independent, identically distributed um, observations when you cluster things in one store over a few hours. Um, and <clears throat> what you really want to know is, okay, do I have a repeatable finding here that can be generalized to other instances. And actually academics since that time, it was a little over 10 years ago that paper was done. There have been a, like 50 attempts to go out and do this, measure, replicate a version of this experiment in various other contexts, you know, MP3 players and, you know, electronics in the store and so on. And when you look at the distribution of results of what appears to be the effect in the test group, the low choice group versus the high choice group, what you see, first of all, is a big normal looking distribution that's when you measure the effect on revenue of or sales or consumption of higher versus lower choice is centered on, but not surprisingly, when you reduce choice, you actually reduce consumption. When you increase choice, you increase consumption. And so what it's highlighting, I think, is why sequences of replicated experiments are crucial. Uh, Arnold Kling had a great, better way of putting it than I did when he read an early version of something I wrote, which is don't trust one-offs. Even when you do experiments, first of all, you have to design the experiment, right? And I think this experiment was, you know, uh, it was, they're very careful researchers, and I see why they did what they did, and it was smart the way they designed it, but fundamentally, they just didn't have the resources to run the experiment, right? Um, to run it across multiple sites over enough time, which is an important lesson for social experiment. But second, even if you had good internal validity in the experiment, you had a well-designed experiment, <clears throat> the, the effect of interventions varies so much with context because of this idea of causal density that you need replications of experiments to begin to have confidence that you have a generalizable finding that could be applied to future instances. And of course, there's a publication bias. The studies that survive are the ones that find a big impact, especially a counterintuitive impact. And we uh, that's you know. definitely the case, you know. But it's really I talk about this um, in the book. So there's this famous paper focused on medical findings from. 2005, and it's one of the most widely cited papers in medicine now. So the guy, the guy did is he went back and said, "Okay, I'm looking at I'm going to look at instances where some finding has been reported 
and then it's been attempted to be replicated with the same or stronger research design. So if it was a kind of epidemiological study and found the effect, I'm making this example up, of aspirin on, you know, heart attacks is the following. Has there been after that a true randomized trial, say, of the effect of aspirin on heart attacks, or if it was a, an originally random randomized controlled trial of aspirin, was there another randomized controlled trial in the exact same intervention and so on? And said, what happens when you look at replications? And the headline finding is, you know, on the order of something like half the findings uh, either fail on replication or they have a materially smaller effect on replication. But below the headline finding is that actually 90% of the time when you the first finding is a randomized trial, it's replicated correctly. 80%, 20% of the time, when the first finding is not a randomized trial, it fails replication. This is a good example we are talking about earlier, which is why should we not believe that we can really use regression and other methods to find causality? Because in this example, when put to the test, it doesn't work. However, when you really run randomized trials right, there's a reason we do it. Like in medicine, it will generally be replicated. And in spite of all the publication bias stuff, in spite of all the incentives that are really skewed about pharma companies and so on, when you really run randomized trials in medicine, you do see good replication of results. It is a reliable finding. When we, when we move kind of up the ladder of complexity, social reality for things like the choice, the jam choice experiment, what happens is replication becomes uh, replication is not certain because the effect of you know, polio vaccine in the bloodstream, I can run a polio vaccine test in Norfolk, Virginia, and be reasonably comfortable that if I've run that test right and I found that it prevents polio, it's going to work in suburban Seattle and downtown Dallas and rural Ohio. If I do a literacy program in Norfolk, Virginia, I cannot conclude that that finding is applicable in all these different environments. The reason is because generalization is much harder and a more complicated social environment than for biological interventions where we can usually make a tolerable engineering assumption about uniform biological response. Yeah, you mentioned you go through a number of different social areas where we've tried uh, large-scale and small-scale experiments. Um, One you mentioned in education is the STAR experiment, uh, which I think was done in Tennessee, and uh, which which purported to show that uh, smaller class sizes led to better test results. Uh, if I remember correctly, one of the claims. But of course, that's right. It's not just that. Well, maybe it works in Tennessee, but it won't work in Texas or or North Dakota. It's that you didn't necessarily control for how it was administered and who followed the actual rules of the control group and who volunteered to be the control group. So it's not really a randomized field trial the way it would be if you administer the polio vaccine. It's it's in a way a mix of. A randomized field trial with a regression analysis, ultimately. Well, I think that you know that experiment um, uh, was a well done, well designed experiment that really was randomized and so on. I think that it's actually a lot of the a lot of the choice uh, natural experiments where you do have this uh, kind of um, the bacillus of you know uh, regression analysis and so on and matching uh, is introduced. I think the problem with the star experiment is not internal validity, but it's external validity, which is to say what exactly as you're saying in different contexts, both defined by different kinds of school districts or different kinds of economic environments. And also, as you're saying, different levels of execution skill and so on. um, It is unclear how generalizable that finding is because it was one experiment and it's very dangerous um, to rely on a single experiment. I go through an example of this where you had a single experiment, 
it was relied upon. And while the program was being rolled out, actually replications were happening, which completely undermined um, the initial political conclusion. That was the case of a famous crime experiment. And so what I'd say is, as I read, all of my reading about that experiment, which I've read a lot about, is it was a well-designed, professionally executed experiment. It's just, it was only done once in one place. So what are we to conclude? In the book, you suggest we need a lot more trial and error, um, which uh, we need a lot more laboratories working. We need a lot more uh, multiple interventions that are experimental in nature that, that allow us to learn something. Because one of the things that you could conclude from your book uh, really is the um, how little we know, obviously, and right. – um, how do we how do we improve on that? Is it, it by the way the other lesson which I think is is really very powerful and and um, there's more than one but one of the more other more powerful lessons of the book is that even things that work don't have much of an impact and, and you'd expect that there are no silver magic bullets laying around that we haven't fired uh, in in these social contexts often and that's you know comes back to the point that economics is about trade offs. There's no magic policy that's going to make everybody twice as smart or even 20% smarter, um, most of them are going to have small marginal impacts, and that's hard for people to accept politically. Yeah, I agree, and you, you, I've seen this over and over again as huge companies implement this, and what I observe is what you see in large corporations and all the experiments I've seen around business experiments, you see the exact same thing, field after field after field in social science economics. Uh, education, social welfare, criminology, and I kind of document this, you know, field by field, that there are some observations you can have about, well, what happens when you put these great-sounding reform or improvement programs to the test? And first of all, almost nothing works at all. So a vast majority of ideas cannot, cannot survive multiple replicated randomized experiments and demonstrate improvement in a test group versus a control group. Like, a vast majority do nothing. Second, to your point, of those that work, um, uh, those that work almost always create very small improvements. Um, you know, progress is a mountain of pebbles, not, you know, if we could just get nurse visitation and head start to young kids, we would, we would solve, you know, a vast Poverty. problem of inequality and yeah. poor education results for lots of people. Not, not sure. Even the things that work create small improvements. And third, trying to change people and their character, um, is even less likely to succeed than trying to change incentives that people face or the environment they operate in. Um, those are some meta lessons I think about that you can see by looking at experiments. And I don't believe before this book, I don't know if anyone's tried to do this, which is really look across. I, I tried to catalog every large scale randomized field experiment ever done in the developed world. And I don't succeed because I don't know for a fact I got every one of them, but I think I have most of them. And it's striking how consistent those findings are across different areas and are consistent with what I see in business experiments. Now, uh, in the area of, of uh, international aid and fighting poverty outside the United States, there's been a recent growth in um, uh, field trials in underdeveloped poor countries trying to test right. the effects of interventions. And uh, yep. one of the Leaders in that field, Banerjee was was a guest on this program and defended that that strategy. Uh, think, thinking about that work now in light of your um, book, 
it seems to me that that literature is very weak on replication. They're very big on one-time experiments that have often very large impacts. Uh, I don't think they've gone back and looked at, at multiple um, interventions in multiple places, but maybe they have. Do you know that literature at all? Uh, not well. I mean, I'm aware of it, obviously, and I referenced it in the book, but one of the reasons I was careful to qualify in the developed world when I talked about listing experiments was I don't believe that I know enough about the context of the, I mean, I've lived a good part of my life outside the United States, but don't know the context of the societies well enough to really interpret them. Um, in general, there is rapid growth of, on a percent basis, of experiments um, in social science. So I don't believe I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. I think I'm aligned with a reform movement. Um, it still is a an extreme minority opinion uh, or extreme minority sort of predilection. Um, but in field after field, you see it growing. And one hotspot for sure is you know, the Poverty Action Lab and, and, and what they're doing um, in, in terms of international experiments. I have observed informally the same thing you have, which is um, it's, it's, I don't see a lot of replication. And therefore, uh, you know, external validity is uh, open, is an open question. And I, it's possible that you can get much bigger gains in the developing world potentially than you can in the developed world because, you know, in some rough conceptual sense, we're closer to the efficient frontier. But I start from a position of skepticism that, you know, these uh, relatively simple interventions can really create gigantic improvements. It doesn't mean I know that it's not true or even that I disbelieve it, really that, that I'd want to see independent replication before I'd accept the finding. Another theme in the book, it's a, and it's a very Hayekian uh, book overall, and this is a particularly Hayekian idea, is that often what we observe around us is a very uh, dense uh, ecosystem of of responses to the environment. And to think that by changing one thing, you could uh, lead to some outcome that your model has has uh, predicted is naive at, at best, dangerous at worst. And it, it you suggest in the book that that creates a, um, a status quo bias that, that you suggest is not a pejorative term that we should be much more trusting of how the world is is uh, has emerged and less optimistic about our ability to tweak it or steer it. And I wanted to – I agree with you, but does that not also imply that I should be uh, uneasy about rolling back interventions that I think have failed? So, for example, I would love to get rid of the public school system. I think government schools are, don't do a very good job. Yet I also realize that there's a whole set of things that have sprung up and in response to that. And are we comfortable uh, – are you comfortable suggesting that moving towards, say, more school choice or more private privatization, which, which I think you're sympathetic to, that that's an unambiguous, unambiguous policy improvement? Right. So, I mean, I, I think that um – what I call a rational status quo preference um, in, in, does not imply we should not seek improvement and reform and that we should be, a, I believe that we should be eternally dissatisfied with the status quo, but humble about our ability to know how to improve. And I think it does imply, uh, as you're, as you say, that we should be humble about rolling back features of our political economy that are not brand new and have become part of the landscape that people use to manage their lives. Edmund Burke has this great quote about this in Reflections in the Revolution in France, where he talks about the revolutionaries changing the town names and the units of measure and so on. And um, 
basically saying they're unable to use the vehicles available to them to reform and improve their society organically. And his great quote is that they don't, they should give up the tools because they don't know their trade as politicians. (laughs) And one of the reasons I argue in the book at length that I, I do believe there's evidence that there are at least some marginal improvements created by increases in school choice. Um, uh, what I argue probably will satisfy neither side of that debate, but that moving in that direction of greater choice uh, does make sense, but that we need to take it one step at a time because, uh, you know, we, we don't live at year zero of the revolution. We live in a world with existing institutions and we ought to be, you know, more cautious than bold uh, about radical changes to those institutions. And how, what was the nice way you described it, not status quo bias? How'd you describe it? Uh, a, a rational status quo preference. A rational status I, quo I preference. More, so I like that. It's a more accurate way to, to describe what people call status quo bias because, you know, obviously they're trying to, you know, load the dice in the language. Yeah. So given that that's, uh, I think, correct, having a uh, rational status quo preference, not a bad starting place, you suggest in the book some ways that we might improve on the status quo by gaining something close to knowledge as opposed to what we often pretend to have. Um, one of the things you advocate is more state experimentation. So what make the case for that? Well, I think that um, I'll start with an actual historical, uh, you know, it's aligned with my argument, I guess, an, a, an actual historical experience that I think is an imperfect prototype for what I'm describing. So, in the 1960s and 1980s, as welfare, or was time called AFDC, became a huge political issue and was losing a lot of its uh, legitimacy as um, you know a program that was supporting uh, a way of life that lots of people who were paying taxes didn't agree with, um, there was huge political impetus to reform it. And from the late 80s to the early 90s, there were a wave of uh, experiments done in the United States. And the base of the experiments were states administer welfare in the United States. And the government, the federal government, has a long list of rules for how you have to go about executing this program. And states began to request and get waivers, what are called policy waivers. So state X said, you know, it's not the current law, but we would like to institute a, say, a family cap, which is after a certain number of kids in your family, your purpose benefit begins to decline. Um, And what the federal government did is said, you know, okay, we'll start to become very liberal about giving these waivers. Um, but the quid pro quo is you must run a randomized experiment if you want the waiver in which some people randomly chosen get the change and some randomly chosen people don't. And this experiment has to be run according to defined protocols and you have to report the results. And there were 31 of these experiments run uh, in that era. And we discovered real knowledge um, that led to the replacement of the AFDC program, among many other political considerations, with a program called TAMP, which is now what we mean by welfare and is oriented around getting people from welfare to work uh, and has been, in my view, an unambiguous, huge policy success. And so what I argue is that whatever on any given area of our political economy, from healthcare to welfare to unemployment insurance to criminology, whatever, to whatever extent we feel the need to have uniform national rules at some level or higher or lower level of abstraction or specificity. And I argue that in general, we should be heavily biased towards allowing independent localities to be free to do what they want. Um, wherever we are in that trade-off in any given area, we should have a very strong predilection 
uh, which is not absolute, but within very broad limits to allow states that say, look, we want to try some variant in this law. To allow them to do it, to give them a policy waiver, but make as a quid pro quo an experiment. Um, so we can actually measure the results of that change. I think that is not the road to nirvana, but it is the road to lots of small incremental improvements in our national regulations. And increasingly, we will discover that, oh, you know, it works in Alabama on this topic, doesn't work in Alaska, and, you know, letting Alabama and Alaska do different things. And we're almost out of time. Do you have any suggestions for how we might improve um – macroeconomics as it's practiced. I mean, one of the things your book does, I think, that's very uh, healthy is it, um, I think it sensitizes the reader to the dangers of um, the phrase studies show. And I don't think you can have Mm -hmm. enough books that uh, remind people that that's not a scientific statement, even though they're peer-reviewed, even though it made the front page of the New York Times. Um, And as we're talking, I'm thinking about Hayek's pretense of knowledge Nobel Prize address, which is another version of what we're talking about. Can you imagine anything that would help us make progress in the area of macro or or should we just or should honest people just um, say it's beyond our skills as human beings? It's beyond my skills. Um, I don't know about other people's Um, because I think at a practical level, I can't imagine, which doesn't mean it can't be done. I just can't imagine how you would run real experiments to test theories. And therefore, in terms of what I know about, it would be very hard for me to describe ways to make progress. And therefore, my argument would be, we ought to think of, we basically the precept ought to be to be very humble about what we think we know and don't know about macroeconomics. And therefore, as a corollary, always hedge our bets. Um, and, you know, if absent of progress made by people other than me, uh, you know, that's the way I would see it. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, one of my favorites is the uh, is the view that we just haven't had enough depressions. We've had you know one and a half maybe, <laughs> and we just need twenty or th- when we have twenty or thirty more, we'll have enough. And I, you know, in our um, in, in the Keynes Hayek rap video that I did with John Popola, Keynes right, talks right. about World War II ending the Great Depression, which is very widely believed, I think, by many people. Right. And we have Hayek respond, one data point, you're jumping for joy. The last time I looked, yeah. wars only destroy. And I think there's so much right. cherry picking and um, one point data point uh, conclusions right. that are drawn. Uh, it's hard to imagine that we'll accumulate enough experience to um, to learn more. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the Keynes-Hayek rap videos are uh, among the great artifacts of Western civilization. You're very uh, kind. But I, I, I think we could have, we could have, 20,000 Great Depressions, and it still wouldn't resolve the problem. Because I can think of lots of instances where we have 20,000 or 20 million occurrences of some uh, uh, phenomenon, and we still can't uh, identify the causal mechanism correctly. My guest today has been Jim Mansey. Jim, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.